Greetings, friends, and welcome to episode nine of Singing Scientist. Today, we are going to continue our discussion of issues related to social media, and I am very uh, glad and grateful to have the one and only Devin Harold here, who is a user design practitioner at a major company. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you first got started in, and interested in social media or media in general. Of course. Um, so thank you so much, first and foremost, for allowing me to be here today and kind of talk to you a little bit more about what I do and kind of how that influences digital products and services. So uh, as a user experience practitioner, I help to design and to also research digital products and services, um, whether it be GPS systems or phone apps or whether it be the phone that you use itself or even a website um, really understanding people's needs around why they use these services and how to make it better for them. I originally got started in well, this okay, field. Hold on. I want to yes, ask a question yes, first. Yes, of course. So you mentioned like use of cell phones, use of internet browsers, websites. But is that all that this is limited to? Or is, is there more to user design experience than just cell phones and computer screens? Um, so there is more to it. A lot of times in many aspects of the field, people work with um, physical products and services as well. So a lot of times you'll have like different um, products and services like a GPS system. But okay, really, so that's like its own standalone hardware. Yeah, and you might have experience or be involved in something like that too. Yeah, so as well as apps. Exactly. So what I do is more of the digital side. So mm -hmm. if you walk into a mall and there's a kiosk showing you the where the stores are and stuff, I might help to design that. Okay. I might help to design a website that you visit or your favorite app. Okay, okay, great. So what, yeah, why, why did you first get interested in this, in, in this field? So I first got interested in this field because I really wanted to be in design. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought graphic design would be a great opportunity for me because I really liked kind of that creative outlet. Yeah. But as I started getting more and more into the field of design, I started at a digital marketing agency where... They focused on creating websites and applications for people. And I heard this term, user experience, and really it's a term that was uh, kind of coined back in the 80s from an older practice called human-computer interaction. It's kind of the, oh. the central point in between computer science and psychology. And it was back when they first created the very first computer. Those were human-computer interaction specialists okay. that helped to identify what was easiest for a human to use to be able to use a machine in order to get a task done. So that's kind of what human-computer interaction is. Okay, so that's it sort of started right. as a an, an exploration of what would be easiest for the user. So it's like user-friendliness right. is kind of where this started. Exactly, and there's a, a term out there in a whole separate field of study, human factors is actually what it stemmed from, and that actually has a lot more physical properties. So human factors mm. is to help de design, for, for instance, the microphone that we're talking in today to make it more ergonomic. But mm. that in digital products and services turned into human computer interaction. So I really got interested in that because I saw it as an avenue not only to be creative in my own right, but also to help people. Because mm. if you're helping them to use something that's easier, we all remember the days of using products and services that have just been so difficult, so convoluted. Yeah. You just can't figure something out when you're um, trying to get something done. Like like 10 minutes ago when we were trying to you know figure out how the podcast microphones were going to work. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so every frustration that you've ever had with your phone or your computer, that's what 
really got me into it is trying to alleviate those issues. And, okay. and that's called usability. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like a humanitarian effort because you're trying to give everyone access. Is that kind of the idea? Like it is the access. It is the idea. And actually, there's this thing called um, WCAG, which is Web Accessibility Guidelines. And that's actually specifically for web, websites. Oh, so wa- how do you spell it? W-A-C-G. Um, w- okay. Yeah. Web Accessibility Content Guidelines. That's okay, okay, okay. Um, so really, it's to focus on if you make the digital products and services that you're working on, websites or mobile apps, accessible to people with disabilities, whether they have blindness mm. or whatnot, um, any sort of uh, determent, people who are just keyboard users, um, then you're actually making the web accessible to everybody. So that was right. something that I actually dabbled in in my previous company as well, which to your point, is kind of like a noble cause. Uh, right. Sort of, if you can design for the needs of few, you're kind of designing for the needs of the many. Right, so. and it's really all in, in line with the philosophy of keeping the internet open. Right. Right, for everyone. Right. So, so that's where you started in right. user design. But I, and, and so part of what brought this about, Devin and I were introduced by a dear friend, Jeffrey, and have since become great friends. And I, I knew that Devin was um, someone who really excelled in his field because he's been invited to give workshops and, and publish blogs on his, on his uh, research and his work. So part of what stimulated this discussion was episode six, where we talked about, should we delete Facebook? And what are some steps that we can take to essentially guard against being controlled by the algorithm of Facebook and Google and other and other social media outlets, empires, if you will. And so that is a that was a very negative light. And so how did um, I know that you heard that episode? What was your first reaction to some of the information we talked about there? So my first reaction was really I guess I understood exactly what you were mentioning as far as the dangers that can be had. Part of making things easier to use is making things more accessible. Mm -hmm. And there are people who kind of use that for a negative turn and something more to generate revenue rather than helping people accomplish their tasks. And so while I'm focused on allowing people to accomplish their tasks in an easier manner, there may be others that are focused on just generating more profit and making it easier for you to allow them to do that. And so that's what kind of resonated with me when I was hearing some of the things that you were talking about in your previous episode about Facebook is how they're utilizing behavioral science and elements of human-computer interaction to make it easier for people to stay on their platform. Right. So just some of the information we talked about is sort of the power of um, tweaking the Facebook algorithm. Studies have shown that if you prioritize certain types of posts or posts with certain types of content and so forth, you can shift to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, election turnout, um, moods, all sorts of things that um, uh, uh, human behavior and emotion and mental states can be impacted by like the ranking of search algorithm results right. or what, what even shows up in your news feed. And um, so part you're saying that in, I know we're not mentioning your company, but um, the company that you work for, do you feel it, that any of what you do contributes? Cause obviously every company is about, being a corporation, making money, right. and keeping its business afloat and having profit. So um, 
is there a distinction between what you do and what something like Facebook's algorithm and Facebook's corporation does? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a distinction because um, oftentimes, like again, or, can, for, for, can you give our my yes. listeners some idea? I just an idea of like the sort of product that you might um, be involved in because it's it's not social media, right? It's no. Not, okay. Yeah. So like an example of a product is we have a mobile app for managing your account. And one of the things that I might do is to allow it to allow, um, do research and to help design an experience that will allow you to pay your bill easier. Okay. And that's something that you want to make sure your bill is paid on time. You want to make sure that you keep the lights on sort of thing. Right. Um, so that's something that I would help you do, but something more like what Facebook or what Twitter would be, would be worried about is keeping you on the platform and keeping you engaged in their platform because that's how they make revenue. That's not necessarily okay. how my company makes revenue. So that's why that's not really the forefront of kind so of So you're making focus. it real easy to pay your bill, which makes sense, right? right? But you're not like trying to get someone addicted to the bill paying app. So right. it's about exactly. an addiction versus... Um, just usability. Right. And that makes sense that, um, you know, on the one hand, if you're, if you're just trying to get someone to pay a bill for a different service, yeah, you have no stakes in getting them addicted to your app or (laughs) manipulating their behavior in any other way. Right. Right. So, okay. In fact, it's the exact opposite. A lot of people um, who particularly use this app, they don't use it for very long and they don't need to because it's something where you're in and you're out and that's fine. That works for everybody. But, with Facebook or other social media platforms, they want you to be in and not out. They right. want you to stay. So that goes to the sort of addictive right. dopamine hit aspect of, um, of Facebook. And, you know, some, some parts of that for me, it's like seeing these little red bubbles with a number of notifications, <laughs> right. right? It's like, it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's two or 200, like it's just as enticing I need to check it so that that bubble goes away. Right. <laughs> and I can, you know, maybe it was something really meant for me or like a message. Who knows what it was? Well, that's the thing. It's it's some sort of indicator that you're missing out. Yeah. And you really want to make sure that you check it so you're not missing out. And that's something that a lot of organizations capitalize on. Right. So that, that kind of ties in with the behavioral psychology aspect right. of this. So... Um, Facebook has done a really good job of exploiting um, behavior and psychology. Um, And one of the former Facebook executives in charge of user growth, his name was Chamath Palihapitiya. He was involved in Facebook early on. And I have a couple of uh, quotes from him that I want to read and see what you, how you might react. Sure. Um, So he said this in, um, you know, there's several interviews that he has had regarding his role at Facebook, he does not have a Facebook uh, account. Uh, he's kind of very much against it and speaking out against it now, as a lot of those Silicon Valley people are now. That's what I've heard. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says, um, for starters, consumer internet businesses are about exploiting psychology. We want to figure out how to psychologically manipulate you and give you back that dopamine hit. We did that brilliantly at Facebook. We live in a world now where it is easy to confuse truth and popularity. And you can use money to amplify whatever you believe and get people to believe that whatever is popular is also truthful. 
So do you have any thoughts about that? Is that part of what resonated with you about what, what we spoke about in the previous episode on Facebook? Um, where it's kind of this whole oligarchical thing where the class that has money can afford to pay for this sort of advertising. And Facebook makes it even more insidious because that um, those advertisements are virtually custom tailored to you based on what you've liked, what you've written, what you've shared in the past. So basically the people who want to, to uh, convince you of something can find you in a snap and tell you exactly what you want to hear to change your mind. Do you have any opinions or thoughts about that? Yeah, um, so my reaction to that is kind of, it brings me back to how advertising on the web started mm -hmm. out. And back when AdSense was created in 2003 by Google, they actually- What is it called? It's called AdSense. AdSense, yeah, and what that's, is that? That's actually the first way in which the World Wide Web had uh, major advertising platforms which allowed uh, content advertisers, let's say Target, mm -hmm. to advertise my ad on your blog, for example. Okay. And that's where you see on the right or left-hand side of the web page, there's all these advertisements. And so what happened is that the web began, be began to become um, monetized mm -hmm. and people started making money. That was actually, if you remember a couple years ago, there was this huge blog outburst. Everybody was coming up with a blog, whether it be a cooking blog or whether it be a blog about um, your favorite hobby. The best Benedict. The eggs best Benedict. Egg bag, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And people started uh, capitalizing on that because their blog had all these advertisements and that's great and that's wonderful for them. But part of that was Platforms that were emerging, like Twitter or Facebook, started utilizing the same exact platform. T uh, Twitter a little bit later, mm -hmm. but Facebook actually had advertisements back in the day along the right-hand side. And so to kind right. of to breach off of what kind of you're saying, and, and they noticed that that was no longer feasible for them because of something that's called banner blindness. Now, believe it or not, the the web the World Wide Web has been around since uh, like 20 years, I think right. now. And so it's something that much like anything that's been around for 20 years, you kind of get used to certain things, you expect certain things. And so banner yeah, blindness- Yeah, you become desensitized yes, to the tactics. Or exactly. And so it makes them have to constantly uh, innovate new ways of getting your attention, if you will. Okay, so we're talking about something called banner blindness. Banner and blindness. So this is basically, correct me if I'm wrong, us learning sort of through time where the advertisements are on a screen or on a particular website or whatever, and just learning how to avoid them. So it's not to waste our Correct. time, right? Okay. And so th there's actually a lot of what's called eye tracking studies that have been done where they actually look at the eye fixations as you're scrolling through a web page and see wh what you're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And what they found um, is bar none, nine times out of 10, you pay only attention to the things that are relevant to the task at hand. So if you're on Facebook, you are trying to catch up with friends and family. So you're scrolling down and you're looking at your feed. You're no longer looking to the side right. where the advertisements were. So guess what they created? They, they created stuck them right in there with all the rest of it. They stuck them right in there with everything else. It's the sponsored advertisements. And that's why when you see something that's not your friend and it says sponsored next to it, that is their new way of generating revenue. And Twitter actually piggybacked off of that. And now Instagram is using it too as well. Because it's right there in your feed, it's where you're paying attention, and it's where they know that you will pay attention. Right. 
Okay, so yeah, I, I think I'd almost forgotten that there used to be banners on the side of Facebook. <laughs> right. And that's that yeah, that's a good reminder. Because it's you know, it shifts subtly over time right. and you don't even notice the change. Right. Right. And a lot of the sponsored ads are actually pages or companies which are lightly associated with things that you like based on your Facebook profile. So mm -hmm. they have a whole profile overview of the things that you've liked, the posts that you've liked in the past, and they aggregate all that data in order to serve you advertisements that they find that you would feel relevant. Right, and that's really Facebook's capital. I mean, that, that is what Facebook has to offer companies that pretty much no one else does. It's connecting billions of people Right, who are looking, as you said, to catch up, to, to stay up to date, to share things with friends, um, to get attention or give attention. And uh, because it has made itself such a necessary medium for maintaining that kind of connection, it has our attention right. to do this sort of thing. Right, right? exactly. And like Jerome Larnier says, I, I think I quoted him uh, before, he's, he's another Silicon Valley guy. He said, yeah, a billboard is meant to get your attention, but um, it's meant to get you to watch it. But the billboard isn't watching you. Correct. Facebook is watching <laughs> you. Right. And every single word you like or type and you know, profiling you psychologically. So that's what makes Facebook beneficial or uh, profitable, right? Right. It's how they generate their revenue is by ad streams. And it kind of goes both ways because if you click it's on big an data. Right. If you click on an advertisement that they serve you, they make a cut. Okay. But also the company that's paying them to advertise to you, they're also making that. So it's kind of a two-way revenue stream. That's how they make their money. Yeah, it's good for both of the payers involved. Right, right? and yeah. earlier you mentioned what is the kind of the major distinction in adding some color into like what I do mm -hmm. versus what Facebook does, for example. That's their only revenue stream. That's how right. they make their money. But what I do is completely separate as far as like our revenue streams. Right. And so that's, I think, the distinction between kind of what a uh, term that's thrown out there today in persuasive design versus user experience design. User experience design is putting the customer, the user first mm -hmm. to allow you to do the things that you want to do. Whereas persuasive design is all about persuading you to do the things I want you to do. I see. Can you give an example of persuasive design uh, other than Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> um, a good example of persuasive design. Um, if I'm looking at a product, let's say I'm on a, a detail page, I'm looking at brown leather shoes at Target. Okay. And right next to the button, it says, there's only four left in stock. <laughs> Buy now. Okay. That's an example <laughs> of... It's, that's actually loss aversion that they're practicing there. And it's, oh. and it's a term in which is used to describe a phenomenon in which you don't want to miss out. It's like the notifications right. we talked about earlier yeah. where I'm so afraid of losing this product if I don't get it right this second, uh. it actually increases sales. Yeah, and if Amazon does the same thing. Only 11 left in stock, right? right. So I see, I see. So there, yeah, all the, anyone who's selling something is interested in getting you think that, giving you a sense of scarcity, right? right? Because if you have that sense of scarcity, then you have, oh my gosh, I better, you know, I better buy that in bulk right, <laughs> so right. I make sure I have it in the future. That just happened with my favorite candles. <laughs> it did. Anyway, okay, so what, I have so many questions f to follow up on this. Um, I think the first point I'd like to make is um, this distinction. So you said persuasive design versus user experience design? Correct. Are, are those the two categories? Yeah, I would say that those two are um, sometimes the most confused and 
oftentimes the most contentious between each other. Okay. So again, Jerome Larnier says has this distinction that um, he says there's there's such a, a thing as screen time that is manipulative and screen time that is addictive. You can have addictive screen time without being manipulated. So for example, like playing um, a first person shooter game or you know right. whatever horrible thing, uh, playing some game or. Um, yeah, I think games would be the great. Candy Crush is a perfect Candy example. Crush. Yeah, yeah, that's like way worse than a first person shooter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, so that is an addictive experience, but it is not a psychologically manipulative one necessarily. Is the company that's putting out that game is not trying to convince you of something or gather data on you. Right. right? They're trying to make a game that's fun enough to want you to keep back and also to play it during your downtime. It's not necessarily saying you need to buy this because otherwise you won't be like your peers, for example. Right. So there's su there, there is such a thing as companies like making something addictive without necessarily being behavior modification. Or right. is that is that right? Okay. So in terms of what company, like just, just so we can know what to protect ourselves against, like psychologically, of the big temp tech companies, which one... Uh, or which ones really make behavior modification, gathering of data, spying on you, you, their business model. So we know there's Facebook. We know there's Google. These these companies' capital, you know, they depend on advertising. The, 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 the in that they have is their data, their big data on all of the people who use it. So they're sort of trapped in that business model right. of um, spying and getting you addicted and manipulating you. Are there any others? Are there um, other companies or platforms? I mean, the big ones that I can think of would be, I mean, I, you mentioned Facebook, um, Google. I would say Twitter is right on par with being there with Facebook okay. as far as, I mean, they have a feed. They have sponsored tweets, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, the social media platforms, I think, are the primary big ones uh, of the ones that name a few because that's where all of their revenue is, mm -hmm. is you. And actually, um, funny parallel, I think, that is can be drawn as if anybody's watched Westworld. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love Westworld. Okay. Right. So if anybody's familiar with, like, the old um, series or the, the old version, um, you can look it up online or even the new version. I love the new version, of course. But it's all about collecting data. And I won't say anything more, any spoilers or anything, oh, but yeah. it's very similar to that, that aspect. That is so of, apropos. Of people being the center point of revenue and the center point of data gathering. It's Data itself becomes a revenue stream. Totally. Okay, okay. But yeah, I think you you pretty much nailed, hit the nail on the head. I think it's primarily the social media giants that okay. I can think of. Okay. And of course, my opinion is that Facebook is the worst, like hands down, partly because of its a monopolization of things. I mean, it bought Instagram. So Instagram is Facebook. It, it bought WhatsApp. WhatsApp is Facebook. And although there were promises at the beginning that the platforms would not share one another's data. You know, Mark Zuckerberg said, we have no way of connecting someone's WhatsApp to their Facebook. And then, you know, a, a year later, of course, it's, it's all connected. <laughs> right. um, not only that, though, something that made me even more concerned was that Facebook acquired Oculus virtual reality. Do you right. know why? Or do you have any idea why they might have had an interest in a virtual reality giant? So the only thing that I could think of as far as what would be lucrative to a company like Facebook 
would be they have the data on the things that you like. They have the data on the things that you don't like and the people that you surround yourself with. But they don't have data on how you utilize your space, for example, okay. or how you might surround yourself with particular aspects because virtual reality is only going to keep getting bigger. Right. And one of the things that virtual reality allows you to do is to be in kind of a separate digital world, if you will, of different apps or media that you like to consume. Yeah, and Pokemon Go is kind of like a tiny microcosm yes, of exactly. that, right? And so that's like an extra element. They have, I like to think of it as they have the 2D. That's going to give them the 3D. Kind of okay, like so they, they know how we behave in our digital environment. Right. They don't know how we behave in our physical environment. Right. Is that I remember, what you're saying? Right. Okay. And I remember seeing um, back when Mark Zuckerberg announced the uh, acquisition of Oculus, I do remember that he had, I think it was just a meeting or tea time in his apartment. And mm. someone was physically there and he was digitally there. But I think that goes without saying they had to map his apartment in some regard. Right. So I think that the longer-term strategy for Facebook is to get people to map their physical environment and then to almost create an apparatus for seeing your apps or your Facebook wall on your physical wall, for example. If you've ever think thought about oh. like Fahrenheit 451, they had what was called parlor walls. Okay. And they were entire walls, which were just giant LED screens that filled with different types of media and advertisement as well. Um, but part of that is, of course, this dystopian society or this notion that you're never going to be away from media. And I think longer term, they want to map, like what you had mentioned, your physical space and how you utilize that mm -hmm. to that digital realm that they already maintain. Wow. I had no idea that that would be your answer. And that's just, just like kind of fascinating, kind of terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Enlightening right. either way. I don't yet know what they would use it for, but right. like I mentioned, the revenue stream is data. So collecting any extra amount of data. Well, you can imagine that, like, them. you know, because when you use a virtual reality um, technology in the space of your home or your apartment, like, you have to basically, you know, you put on these goggles so you're walking around in a different reality. And so you have to map where the edges of your room are, for example. Otherwise, <laughs> right. you're going to run into the wall, right? Right. It's <laughs> almost like if you've been on Google Earth, uh -huh. and those, they, of course, map all of the roads. But there are some restaurants that they map as well, that mm. physical space. And oh. that's what Mark Zuckerberg did in that. Okay. He mapped just what you were mentioning, every corner of his space. Right to see how he utilized it so that way he could be there physically or so, digitally. Right? So, okay, what I'm imagining is that, like, you know, people, if, if virtual reality becomes commonplace, which is, of course, conceivable soon, um, that <laughs> Facebook could come up with an ad, say, hey, we know you've got space for a bookshelf in the southwest corner of your room. How about this one? Right? <laughs> right? That's true. Like, it could be... That sort of like advertisers and companies could also utilize it that way. That's true. So instead of, oh my God, get this. So <laughs> instead of uh, you're scrolling down your feed in your wall and then you notice this ad for a bookshelf, you look at your wall and then there's actually a digital bookshelf and it's an advertisement. Wow. And maybe you and can just. And they show you what, wouldn't it look great here? Right. <laughs> wouldn't, it, wouldn't this look fantastic? You can 
embellish it with books, with uh, candles, anything you want to your heart's right. desire. Just click here at the click of a button. You can buy it. And they can uh, even customize it to the dimensions of the wall I'm if you've sure. mapped that. So it's like, hey, the Ikea Benny bookshelf would be the one <laughs> right. to get here. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility for sure. Wow. That's just fascinating. I mean, it's kind of amazing, but it is, you know, it's, it depends on how much people value their privacy over that sort of convenience. And, um, and the question that I have as a result is, what are we giving up, if anything? You know, um, I, I had mixed reactions to uh, my previous podcast on Facebook because, of course, it can be used for good. Social media can be used for good. I mean, look, I advertise on Facebook for this podcast to get to get this going. Um, one of the reasons I came back to Facebook after deleting it was because I felt like I want to be uh, contributing what I feel are good things to this right. uh, public discussion, um, even though no one sees it because Facebook, you know, down regulates <laughs> it in the newsfeed. You know, we have no control over that. But um, what was my question? Oh, yeah, my question is, because of that, what what do you think that we're giving up? Is it worth it um, to have that type of custom-tailored convenience? Is it worth giving up the knowledge and the data on yourself? What are the possible trade-offs? What are the possible ways that that could backfire on users and so forth? Yeah, so I think my first reaction to that is, as far as just talking about the virtual reality piece or an extension yeah. of that, one thing that, if that's the way that they go with the Oculus, the, the digital bookshelf on the wall, custom tailored to you, my first reaction is you kind of give up this sense of exploration or control, I guess, for walking into a store and looking I mean, at uh, all I'm of busy. your options. I'm too busy. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll see that. I just want to be told. So, <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I mean, of course, I'm playing devil's advocate, but... Um, you know, that's kind of my attitude with a lot of things. Is I don't, I don't have time to research this thoroughly. I mean, if somebody can do it for me, sure, I'm, I'll do it. I'll let them have my data. I'm asking you, is there a trade-off I'm not thinking of? Is there some um, downside to giving up that much data where it isn't worth the convenience? It isn't worth being, um, you know, custom targeted. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, that's the scariest thing is I think that there's there's an unknown around how they would plan to use that data. So I, I definitely think that it's kind of this dark area where mm. you're kind of giving up the map of your home and your surroundings and how you interact with it and right. the things that you would purchase for it. And that unknown, I think, is probably scary enough, but well, we can't really tell you exactly what you might miss out on. At least that I can that comes to mind. Right. I mean, okay. So of course, one possibility that comes to my mind that's that's always a reality is, um, for example, since recording the delete Facebook podcast, Facebook had a major data breach. Right. Where uh, Mark Zuckerberg's profile was one of those targeted, and oh, they no. they stole you know all your keychain, and so this this is why um, when we are always given the option to, uh, you know, if we have to create an account on a new app or a new website or something, so often now it's an option to log in with Facebook. Right. Use your Facebook account and information. Well, as a result, Facebook gets the so-called keychain for your account to all of these different apps and, um, and internet sites and so forth. And so what happened, and, you know, that could include credit card information, that could include anything if you buy something on other, on other websites. 
So one possibility that comes to my mind that's always there is the, is just an inadvertent data breach. Even if right. Facebook isn't using it to manipulate you, that happened just a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday, YouTube had a bug where YouTube wasn't working for the last half of the day. Did you did you notice I that? I did not notice yeah, that. Yeah, it was like all a rage. <laughs> People <laughs> were very upset. Um, none of these giants are infallible and the bigger they are the more trapdoors and secret right. ways in there that there are you know actually something that you said that springs to mind the inner it's called the internet of things <laughs> and yeah so that's connected devices through your home internet wi-fi or some sort of network and to your point facebook does connect with all of these digital platforms for allowing easier access um, easier login credentials, a convenience that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And within the last six months, they were even having talks with banks right. to do that. I don't know if, if you heard about that, but they were, I think it might have been Bank of America. I can't remember the exact bank that they were talking with, but talking about having sort of a, a Facebook Messenger-based um, login, you know, a reminder to pay a bill, a reminder to do these things where all of that information would be centralized in Facebook too. <laughs> right. That's just terrifying. Right. I mean, especially if that gets stolen or there's any breach, which is always possible. And on the on the aspect of like virtual reality or mapping your physical space, I know that there are smart locks that allow you to get in your home simply by walking close to it with your phone or, or your uh, mm. cellular device. Mm -hmm. Just imagine if that had a login with Facebook. Right. And then the breach goes live and now someone can get into your home. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could that's a possibility. They already do it with digital platforms today. They could do it with physical platforms tomorrow. Right. And I think just uh, the more that our world becomes a digital one, um, the more that uh, security is an illusion to the extent that your uh, physical reality depends on the digital one. Right. So if you're like you mentioned locks, fi yep. a physical reality, a, a, some, something tangible you can touch. If that depends on a digital reality, then it is vulnerable. Right. Yeah. So one, one thing um, that I, I just really wanted to talk to you about and one thing that impressed me a lot about you in this field was that I read one of your blogs and you talked about the importance of unplugging. Right. Right. So I was like, wow, someone who, to me, that's a tremendously spiritual or at least just wise uh, insight into, I think you were talking about this in the context of running workshops, right? Correct. And running research. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell me more about what made you think or realize the importance of people unplugging? What do you mean by unplugging a little bit? Right. So for me and, and, specifically in my line of work, I think unplugging in terms of research or workshops, design workshops that I run is making sure that you're really focused to the task at hand. For example, a lot of what I do is also just interviewing um, people to understand what their needs or what their hopes and desires are for a product or service that I might be working on. And I don't need to be connected. I don't need to be like, um, like you pinged. mean to something else, <laughs> right? To, exactly. To something else. I don't need to, um, be controlled by all of these people trying to get my attention in my pocket on my phone or something like that. So right. to me, unplugging means giving some time away to be able to 
have that personal interaction because when I'm talking with someone face to face, it needs to be me and them in the room, not me, them in a computer. So actually one of the things that I do is I don't even bring my computer when I conduct mm-hmm. an interview because actually when, um, when you have a computer up, it's almost like this invisible wall where um, it's actually something where my partner Montgomery, he is an interior designer, and he tells me all about if you place a sofa every which way, it creates this sort of invisible wall right. which helps to partition the room, right? So right. that actually happens when you have your phone in your hand or mm-hmm. when you have your laptop in front of you and you're trying to just have a conversation with someone. It's unsaid and it's unconscious, but it's there, and mm-hmm. it actually can impede a conversation from getting deeper than what it needs to. And so by unplugging put the phone away, put the laptop away, really focus on that human connection and that interaction that you're trying to make and let them, them talk to you without any of those constraints. Oh, that's just so good. Like, because this realization, I think, points to a deeper reality and that deeper reality being we can't multitask. No, (laughs) it's just not (laughs) possible. You know, people talk about multitasking. What you mean is doing two shitty jobs, right? At the same time. And I really, you know, the more I live, I believe that's true because um, actually the word priority, when it, when it first, I think the etymology of the word, um, it, it could not, it was not originally used ever in a plural sense. There were no such thing. At the when when the word priority was used as priorities, right? It began as a singular word, because you can only prioritize one, one thing. thing. You can only do one thing at a time. This is um, something that Greg McKeown talks about in his book Essentialism. And so I think that yeah, in my life, I've definitely seen that where relationships suffer, real connection suffers. It. Uh, because of the technology that, like you said, it's acting as a wall, even at the gym, for example, you know, maybe I need, I want to do a really tough set, a really heavy set. And I'd like to ask somebody to spot me for a heavy set. So I don't get stuck under the bar, but everyone's wearing headphones. Yeah. So I can't, you know, I don't want to interrupt. It is literally a wall that you feel like you're impeding space. If that phone is there or if, if the earbuds are in or whatever. So I think, exactly. It's so good to just be mindful and think upon the reality of that because it's it's really like the concept of feng shui, right. you know? If you don't have a space or an opening in your environment, in this case, it's sort of a psychological environment affected by the physical, but yeah, I'm. there are tons of people that I would like to approach but don't because they have those barriers. They have those barriers. They have a phone in their hand. They're... They look engrossed. They look like maybe they're working on something important, but that's that's all a fallacy. They're probably scrolling through Facebook. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, exactly right. They they have those barriers. They put up those walls, and that's why, um, to your question earlier, unplugging is extremely important, especially in the context of research as well. Right, right. Well, I'm I was just so glad to see some a professional in the field realize or you know recognize the importance of that sort of thing. Right. So. One of the insights that you have shared with me in our uh, personal conversations with one another has to do with uh, the thumbnail images that right. you see. And so uh, you, when you see like a, a Facebook post or whatever, or, an, or a YouTube post uh, of, on a, of a video, you see one clip, one frame, one microsecond of that video is sort of the teaser. Correct. Right? 
Um, and so you shared with me that even the thumbnails can be customized for videos to individual people. Can you explain that's, that? That's correct. So a lot of videos, especially Netflix does this as well, they will tag different elements of a video. So let's say So they I, tag like a certain minute of a video or a certain 10 second period or something. They actually tag the whole thing. Like every second. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> okay. but not every second, but like every 10 minutes, for example. Okay. So the other night, just as an example, I'll, I'll kind of expand on a Netflix, um, the Netflix realm. The other night I was watching The Shining. Okay. Now, if they know that I like watching horror movies, maybe I do that quite often, as I'm scrolling through Netflix, they'll show me the most horrific moment in time <laughs> when Jack is smashing down the door because they know that that will get me hooked and go, maybe I should watch The Shining tonight. Right. And in Facebook employees and YouTube employees, much the same thing where it, based on my likes, based on my profile, based on the information they have, they may show me a split moment in time that they perceive that I will like about that video mm -hmm. to get me to watch it. Because if I watch that, then that's an extra four minutes or Netflix's realm, an extra hour and a half that I'm on their platform. So in other words, if I, if there's a video that I share on Facebook, you might see that post differently than someone else sees that post because you're being shown a different frame within that video as someone else. And that, and Facebook can, and other giants can co uh, customize those frames that other people see. Perhaps, yeah. I think okay. it changes, per I'm not exactly sure how it changes per a video you upload or a video that is being advertised. Okay. Because I think advertisers typically have a little bit more to work with since they pay for such power, if you think about it that way. Okay, so if I go on Facebook to uh, promote like my podcast, I don't think, I, at least I haven't seen an option to like really customize like that. Or is, the, is that available to everyone or you have to like have a special account with Facebook to it use that? It may be based on the genre in which you suggest your podcast is in okay, and the type of people that you're looking to market to. So I know that if I'm advertising kitchenware on Facebook, mm -hmm. I can actually say I'm advertising home goods. Based on the people that look at advertisements for home goods, they'll know that on average, this type of person or that type of person will like a specific type of home good, so they might actually tailor it more towards them. Uh, okay, so depending on the, like the categorization of the right. page from which you're advertising something, right? I think I'm, you know, I'm just what like a person or a podcast right, or something right. like that. <laughs> and it probably depends on how much you pay as well, because right. I'm sure that they that Facebook has an enterprise subscription for places like Target that mm. can pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for their advertisements as well. Okay. That's typically how service companies like Facebook and Twitter work, where you pay a premium to get more data, more data, more control. Okay. And so Netflix, because it's a platform of their own, they likely have a team of people that tag all of their videos themselves. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I do know that, that it is definitely a kind of a paradigm that they employ even more than Facebook and Twitter do as far as the video thumbnails are concerned. Okay. So so you mentioned Netflix. So Netflix is not social media. It's a subscription payment-based, you right. know, the consumer is paying for a subscription. Right. But this the sort of end game is the same as Facebook and Twitter okay. as far as keeping you on the platform. Because right. Netflix wants you coming back every night. And subscribing again. And subscribing <laughs> again. That right. makes sense. So it really comes down to, we talk about... Um, persuasive design 
and the means to an end being that they want you to stay on the platform and keep engaged with their platform, that goes without saying most softwares out there that are digital-based softwares because they want you to keep coming back for more. Facebook and Twitter, of course, exploit it a little bit more because it's more of I log in, I see other people's posts, and then I log out. They want you to stay logged in. Well, that's interesting because um, the pers- one of the Silicon Valley people I mentioned before, Jerome Lanier, he's, he, one of his solutions to the Facebook business model is a subscription-based model. But what you're saying is that that might not actually solve the problem. Or do you think it would rein it in a bit? Um, because right now, the business model of Facebook is entirely advertisement-based. If, if there were a social media platform that was subscription-based instead, um, would it be, I guess they're still gathering data? They're still gathering the same amount of data. Okay. And in fact, they're gathering a little bit more. Why? Because a lot of times what happens with companies that have subscription service models, they actually can tailor different, um, pers- different subscription models, whether it be monthly, whether it be yearly, and they'll know the exact amount at which you would pay and for what level of access. Because mm-hmm. Facebook, if they, if let's say in a different world, they move towards a subscription model, they could then offer three different tiered memberships and continually change those memberships based on the type of uh, content that you like to look at and based on how much you would pay. So right now, they may not know how much you would pay for a product or service. That's probably blind to them right now because... You're right. It's just advertisements to you mm-hmm. versus you purchasing things on the platform itself. But if they move to a subscription model, now they know exactly how much you'd pay, how often, what you would pay for, what mm. would you what you would like to pay for. They can create add-ons. So right. like specific apps, maybe that Candy Crush app that we talked about right. earlier. <laughs> and then you could pay for that and they would know exactly what then to advertise you and at what price range to do so. So subscription model may actually prove to be worse. Wow. Okay. Oh, I would be so interested in a conversation with Jerome Lanier. Who suggested <laughs> that's, that's so interesting. So, so there is a distinction between something like Facebook and a subscription-based model in that faith, with the advertisement model or business model of, that um, Facebook relies on, sort of we are the workers for Facebook, right? Like we're the ones sharing. So we are at once consumer and worker. Right. We're being manipulated and we're participating in further manipulation of others through what we share and like and so forth. We're all sort of like hooked together, right? But um, something like Netflix, you're not, um, you're, not, you're not really working to hook others necessarily, although maybe you could say, hey, you should get Netflix or come, come watch Netflix or right. whatever. Is there more of a difference there that I'm not thinking of? Or? I think there is a large difference that Netflix is not a sense of community. You don't connect through others. You connect through media. So Netflix is something where, think about a telephone, right? Netflix is just a walkie-talkie. You're just on the receiving end of media. It's a baby monitor. Right? It's a baby (laughs) monitor, exactly. (laughs) And Facebook is not. Facebook is like a phone on steroids. Yeah, that's like a walkie-talkie and five billion people have it. Right, because (laughs) you're not only sending, sending signals out by posting on your own wall, reposting things that you like, but you're keeping yourself within your bubble of the friends in which you've created or added to your Facebook account, and they're talking to you as well. So Facebook is more of using 
kind of those connections, both familial, both platonic, a sense of community, the pages that you like, if you're a part of any Facebook groups, maybe that's thousands of people that you're connected through. And that's why it's called social media, because they utilize what's called social proof, which is another term that's out there around. Um, and it, it can be used for behavioral um, and more persuasive design tactics, but it can be used for good as well. Mm -hmm. Social proof is just the idea of uh, you kind of succumb to the uh, needs of the many, as you will. There's a lot of studies out there that suggest that uh, mirroring, for example, is a form of social proof. If everyone's lining up in front of your favorite restaurant, you're probably going to join the line, and you're probably not going to ask any questions as to why you're, <laughs> right. you're joining the line. Well, clearly that's the best rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just something that we were taught or that we see other people do, and it all stems from this like behavioral mindset stemming way back from evolutionary psychology around if you don't follow what everybody else is doing, you could die. For example, uh -huh. okay. when you were went back when they were foraging for food, you follow the pack because safety and numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're following people lining up in a line, for example, for a restaurant, or constantly posting or talking about this one thing on Facebook, yeah. a particular idea or a particular political party, for example, those are your friends. Those are your family members. They got to be right. right. They raised you. They're there in your community. And that's why sometimes I refer to it as the bubble because yeah. you have this circle of friends that perpetuate this similar mind of thinking and that's social proof. It's everybody says it. So perhaps it's true if I can't be the only one who opposes it and I can't be wrong. Right. So they must be right. Oh, there's layer on layer of dimensionality here because on the one hand we have the point of psychologically we often like like we spoke about earlier equate the popular with the truth. Right. So if we think, you know, if if it's the first opinion that comes up on Google when we search on a topic, or if, if it's what the Wikipedia page says is true about a particular controversy, then we just believe it because that appears to be the most popular or well-researched or whatever. So that's a phenomenon already. Like we don't need any, no, nothing else, just whatever's popular tends to brainwash right. us. But on top of that, what we're saying is that um, because of the nature of, I guess, social proofs or these group identities, tribes, I think we would call them, right? right. Online tribes. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's pretty accurate. Where actually it's even worse because um, you get pigeonholed based on what you like, based on the groups you join, based on what you share. Like we said, you know, we have sort of this illusion that we're being shown a random sample of people's posts on Facebook. And I think when it's, you know, when I, when I'm pretty old now, because <laughs> I was on Facebook when it started. And I think that's probably what was happening then. So, uh, you know, us old timers, so to speak, um, have this memory of once seeing this random hodgepodge of, of, you know, posts from everybody. But that is not the way newsfeed works anymore. And like I said, you know, we, we share something and it gets chugged through that algorithm and shown to just certain people based on their psychological profiles. And more importantly, we are shown only certain things based on our so psychological profiles. So, in fact, it could be the case that what you think is the most popular isn't even the most popular. <laughs> right. It's just what Facebook is choosing to show you. And so how much more 
power does that have to brainwash us into believing something specific? And it's, it's not like Facebook is trying to convince us of a particular viewpoint. It's just trying to get us to buy in to, to its manipulation. Model. Right. And, and to expand on what you mentioned about like the newsfeed and how it spit out, spits out an algorithm or it goes through an algorithm yeah. rather to show you what they want you to see. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention that Facebook also does is they save up notifications to give them to you on a schedule that they believe you'll, that will most likely stimulate you to get you back into the platform. Oh. So based on how often you visit Facebook throughout the day, it tracks that over time and it will give you notifications at just that right moment. <laughs> so that way you log back in and you see what's going on. We talked about the notification bubbles at the beginning of right. the podcast. And I think that that lends itself very well to how they use the same sort of algorithm to give you a news feed. They use an algorithm to get you back in the platform. And that's why I do not keep Facebook on my phone. <laughs> I just don't keep it on my phone because then I have to deliberately go to Facebook. And like you said, I can tell they've been saving up these canned notifications like, hey, people haven't heard from Singing Scientist in a while. Why don't you share something? Right. It's like, thank you, but no thank you. You know, I, That's another part of this social media culture that I really uh, goes against my grain because I don't want to record a podcast unless I have something to say. I'm not going to put... There is There is plenty of content in the world there doesn't need to be more content for the sake of content. I just want to say something if I've got something to say. And if I don't, I'm not going to say it. And I think those not- say anything at all. And those <laughs> notifications are constantly telling us to banter, basically, right? I mean, they're, they're telling you, why don't you say something? Right. <laughs> it's saying, hey, you haven't posted in a while. You haven't posted a photo if it's Instagram, for example. There's an aspect of that of... Uh, behavioral psychology that yeah. is involved in persuasive design. And Facebook employs employed yeah. behavioral psychologists uh, in order to follow what's called B.J. Fogg's behavioral model. And that, Okay, so Facebook has literally hired psycho- like professional psychologists in, in order to enlist their expertise in how to manipulate people and get them hooked. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. They, they do still to this day, and they have in order to create... The algorithms that you see within their uh, timeline, for example, but a lot of other aspects of Facebook um, that probably I can't even list even in the time that we have today. But they've employed behavioral psychologists, which use this model. B.J. Fogg is a behavioral scientist. Um, He has, you know, he has a noble cause for just trying to bring behavioral science out into the world in a way that helps people, but of course, people who take his courses, he has different seminars and stuff on the West Coast. You can check him out. His name is BJ Fogg. And- um, Was that a Fogg with two Gs? Fogg with two Gs, correct. And he he hosts these workshops about using behavioral science as a means for perpetuating good change within the world. But when people take his workshops, they can become professionals in his particular line of work. And what he has is, a method for being able to instill a behavior. It's called an intervention change. And mm. that intervention that you're looking to um, to enact or design for someone else is by three, three major aspects. And one is the motivation. Um, does someone have the will to do something? Then another thing is a trigger. 
is something. Okay, so, so we're and this is all in the context of getting someone to change or yes. So change num- their behavior. Okay, so if you if you want to change your their behavior with the BJ Fogg method, correct. Number one, you have to identify their motivation. Correct. You have to identify what motivates them uh, at that particular moment. Okay, and what was number two? Number two is a trigger. So a trigger is. Um, kind of giving them the ability to act on those motivations. It's a prompt. And in order to act on your motivations through that prompt, you have to have the ability to do so. And the ability could be, let's bring it back to Facebook, for example. Your motivation is wanting to keep up with friends and family, so you're scrolling through your timeline. So your motivation is information foraging. You want to learn a little bit more about what's out there, your friends and family, you stumble across that sponsored ad that's smack dab in the middle of your sister, Jenny, and your mother, Laura. <laughs> and it's right there advertising that bookshelf that we talked about. Right, right, right. And the ability is this huge button saying, buy now, you're going to save 30% off. There's only three left. And the trigger is, is that button. So the, the ability to do so is you sitting there in front of that computer, right there, smack dab in between your mother and sisters, this big advertisement. Yeah. And the trigger is that huge buy now button. So that's just a smaller example of how companies like Facebook employ this behavioral model for making sure that they either instill motivation by giving you incentivizations like a cost savings or mm-hmm. scarcity that we talked about, right? Um, allowing you the ability to do so, whether it's, oh, click here to learn more about the product, click here to buy now, and then giving you the trigger, which okay. is the... Maybe a good trigger is the ability to have credit card information stored on Facebook. For example, you mentioned that you advertise on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Your credit card information is stored there, so it's that much easier for you to be able to buy a product or service through the platform. Right. Okay, so number one, they identify the motivation. Correct. Number two, they uh, provide a trigger. Yep. And three, they give you the ability to act on that trigger. Correct. And that's, so Facebook has, do you know why that they are particularly interested in this school of thought, like the BJ Fogg school of thought? Because you said they, is it true that they um, tend to hire people from that line of thinking? Yeah, they, ha- they hire specific behavioral scientists. And I think the reason being is because when you're talking about social media and you're talking about people consuming that content, the change in behavior is from pure consumption to consumption of a different kind, and that is like buying a product or service or clicking through advertisements. So their behavior might just be scrolling, and the behavioral change, the intervention that you want to instill is to get them to click Click. out and click, click, (laughs) click, and buy. So that is why this particular line of work, behavioral science, is something that a lot of social media platforms, namely Facebook, use and employ. Fascinating. What are the good things about uh, Facebook and customized tailoring of information and, and, and so forth? Um, what are the good things about social media? And second of all, regarding the bad things, what can we do to, you know, if we can't quite separate ourselves entirely, you know, social media is here to stay to an extent. So accepting the reality of its existence, are there steps we can take? Are there are there things we can be mindful of or like physical practices that we can engage in um, abstaining from certain things? What would you suggest? So the first thing is, what do you see as the good aspects of these things? 
So the I think a good aspect of social media, there's a couple that come to mind. And first I'll go through Facebook and then I have an idea for Twitter as well. But for Facebook, I think the really good part about a social media platform like Facebook, the bubble that I mentioned earlier, is that that bubble is created by you <laughs> yeah. because you have the control to kind of control the community in which you are surrounded in. Yeah, you 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 turn down certain, you turn right. off some voices <laughs> right. and you turn up other voices. Right, it's just like your phone. You have control to block people that um you know, either tick you off or that just <laughs> are like stalkers what have you. Right, but right. You can also surround yourself with family and friends and I think a lot of times it's harder to make that physical connection because exactly what you mentioned earlier with your gym example, mm -hmm. people have headphones on or people have their phone out. People are too busy nowadays, quote unquote. I think Facebook allows you an avenue to be able to vent and have others hear you and have that a little bit of like that psychological need filled by having someone there for you all the time because you're surrounding yourself with that community that loves you, hopefully, yeah. and that supports you. And yeah. If they don't, then you can block them. You have that control. So that's, I think, the really good thing about Facebook is allowing you to build that sense of community. Okay. It's just, of course, as I mentioned for the for the kind of bad things, it's just when that gets more exploited with advertisements. Because in reality, it's not that the platform is making others tell you things. Other people are just posting on Facebook their opinions, their thoughts or ideas. Yeah, it's just a filter. Exactly. It's natural selection, <laughs> if you will. Right. Except not so natural. Right. Yeah. But if you go, but if I go to your wall, I don't your wall is just um, as it stands today. Mm -hmm. It's just chronological. So I can look at what you've posted in what order. If I go to the news feed, of course, that's where the algorithms are spit out. So I still have the right. ability to see what went on in your life a month ago if I haven't caught up with Chase in a while. Right. Okay. So I think that's a really good thing about Facebook. The good thing about Twitter is it's actually used by, and actually Snapchat as well nowadays, used by a lot of the younger population for news. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember a particular case in which there was a, I believe it was an apartment fire that sprang out and someone had tweeted, help, there's a fire at my apartment, we can't get out. That was faster to get a hold of the fire department than people texting and even calling. And that's something that was crazy to hear, but Twitter can be used as a really great avenue for getting news very quickly and in small chunks instead of having to read an entire article, for example, to know what's going on in the world. Yeah, and, um, and resisting regimes. You know, there's been a lot of great political change that has been right. enabled by... There's a lot of groups that kind of um, come together. Like Facebook, for example, is that bubble, right? You fill yourself with your friends and your family where Twitter allows you to expand that mm -hmm. and talk with people that could be thousands of miles away who believe or understand the same things that you're going through. So I think that's another kind of that sense of community right. that's there within Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah, th those are great things. So <clears throat> speaking of, you, you know, shifting gears to what we can we do to protect against the less good uh, aspects of these of these uh, platforms um i'm always reminded and I, I've, I've yet to talk about this in this context but it's always in the back of my mind i think about this book by noam chomsky um the mit linguist and political um commentator you know very <laughs> liberal guy um he wrote a book called manufacturing consent uh 
isn't that a great term? <laughs> right. Manufacturing consent. And the whole, the whole idea is sort of stemming back to the Creole Commission in World War I, which was basically like a propaganda branch of the government that was founded to turn the uh, U.S. population, which was more pacifistic at the time, trying to get them uh, into going into a war in, in Europe. And so it was kind of like um, a government propaganda adventure in advertising, wow, right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the whole idea here is that if you have like a fascistic government or like a communist government or a military government, a closed society, you can control people by force. And therefore, uh, propaganda is not even necessary in that context. But in an open society like our democracy and republic, um, the way that the government has uh, of controlling people is through propaganda or advertising or uh, what have you. And so the way that that manifests itself is usually um, what information the government decides to give to the uh, journalists, to give to the news media. And so the government can frame discussion. It can use, you know, spin things in certain lights, and it can control the, even the questions that are being asked right? Um, just based on the information it gives to news media. And so to what extent do you think, uh, you know, it's not, just, it's not just the government, and it's not just corporations, it's everything, whether whether it's in a context of elections or voting for different things, it, it's it's from our personal lives all the way to these big government and legal uh, political um, issues. So, what do you think that we can do to prevent from being manuf have, having our consent manufactured, whatever the the party is, you know, whether it's government or not? Right. I think it goes down to something that we referenced a bit earlier that you mentioned was in my blog. Mm -hmm. And I think it all comes down to knowing and having maybe even a schedule around a time to unplug. Yeah. Because I think it's, it does, it can wait. It can it wait. Can okay. Wait. I'm going to write this down <laughs> because we talked about earlier <laughs> that Facebook has uh, the internet they, will be there when you get back. <laughs> right. well, all the notifications that are piling up, yeah. they're not piling up. They've been there, and they're just being served to you at that particular moment in time, mm -hmm. so that way you perceive that they're piling up. But they're not going anywhere. The thing is about, and it's silly because I'm stating the obvious, but sometimes you have to state the obvious in order to really realize how true it is. The notifications that you get on your phone are all past. They're not present. Someone didn't like your post right now. They liked your post five minutes ago. Yeah. So if someone already did something or posted a photo or asked for, for uh, asked you a question on social media, it's there in the past. So why, why feel the need to go and look at it right this moment when it's already been sitting there for 10 minutes? It can wait. I think right. there's a, there's a huge part of our lives that needs to be devoted to healthy unplugging time and being able to remove those barriers that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really healthy to do that either. I mean, whatever works fasting. for you. Yeah, fasting. Yeah. What, what I call fasting. Fast right. from social media. That's right. And because I think society can so benefit from um, just having a, a tribe that is not under the influence, if you will, that is not plugged in to get that outside perspective. That's not under the control. Right. Right. And I think that it's nice to have 
a specific... Here's the thing. As we talked about the notifications that get served to you on the schedule in which is programmed based on the frequency at which you visit Facebook, why don't, for a change, you control the frequency at which you visit Facebook? Mm. So that way all the notifications are being served to you at the exact moment in which you've already programmed it yourself. You're no longer um, being manufactured consent. Right. You are the one giving the consent in that regard. So right. if every night at 8 p.m. I want to check Facebook to just look at my notifications, check up with my community, my friends, and my family, there's no way in which the data that they collect today that they'll know that you are, quote-unquote, gaming their, their system <laughs> or, or beating them at their own game. Because right. every eight o'clock, every night at 8 o'clock, they'll think that you're just visiting before you go to bed. Right. When you've actually created that regimented system yourself, Yes. so when they serve you those notifications, it's on your schedule, not theirs. Okay. So that's what I would recommend is kind of a, a schedule for unplugging mm -hmm. and a schedule for when you can plug in and unplug again. I love that. And I, you know, I kind of... I kind of arrived at a, at a similar conclusion for myself, but you ha you formalizing it that way just makes it more concrete. And um, I think it's exactly right. You take control back for yourself. Right. Because who knows? You know, I'm sure ha just having Facebook perpetually open and notifications perpetually coming at you, of course it interferes with productivity. Of course it interferes with focus on anything else, whatever that is. It of course it interferes with your goals in life. And of course it interferes with real in-person connection because of the barriers or the invisible walls that you talked about. So I am so on board with <laughs> what you said. So. Um, Devin, I want to thank you so much. I am, I, you know, I knew you were an expert before we had this interview, but now I'm just blown away even more. You know, <laughs> you're such a young professional who's just a rising star. So I'm so thankful that you, that you were uh, willing to do this interview with me. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me here. And I mean, it was fun. I, mean, I definitely think that there are good things and there are bad things about digital products and services, social media, and it's just knowing how to mediate the bad mm -hmm. and grow the good. Yeah. And I think just sort of maybe as a closing quote, um, something that Rob Bell says in his podcast on the internet is, um, you know, he asked this question, in what ways is the internet, which makes so many things like instantly available to us, right? It's all about this instant gratification. How is that spilling over into the territory of the heart, soul, and spirit in the sense of making us just as impatient with our own path as we are with, say, the YouTube video that's failing to, <laughs> to load, right? Like, it, it, it's this culture of immediacy that draws us away and makes us even impatient with ourselves, Right. That causes us to criticize ourselves and be impatient with ourselves. And like, how is that harming us? You know, so unplugging, it's, to me, it's the only way. Right. It's the only way that you can escape it. And just take a vacation. <laughs> right. Like we said, the, it will, you know, just, um, it can wait. The internet will be there when you get back. What's going to happen, right? Well, what's, what's going to happen is you might read a book or something, right? right? You might oh, create the dangers, something. The dangers <laughs> of reading a book, the dangers of analog life. Yes, yeah. So, okay, so unplugging, 
just a couple of um, things that you know I mentioned last time where using the search engine DuckDuckGo because that does not uh, prioritize or custom tailor search search engine rankings. Um, I just learned about something called Signal, which is an alternative app to WhatsApp that is a fully encrypted, no data. Right. Have you heard of Signal? Yeah, I used to use it with some of my coworkers at a previous company that I Okay. Worked. So that's that's an option for a messenger as an alternative for for WhatsApp. Is there anything else? Um, I know there's a there's a plugin called Privacy Badger that you can install into your um, browser. Browsers. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the one where it will stop from caching cookies, so that way they can't advertise direct to what you're doing now. That means that you'll probably get advertised for random things, but you know that it's not for you, or you know that you're at least not being manipulated in that case. Right. Random is good. I'm all about random. <laughs> random, yeah. yeah. So any, anything else? Um, not that I can think I of. That's it. Okay. Well... I'm so thankful for this, and thank you. Um, is there any is there any uh, like business or anything that you want to advertise for yourself on this podcast? Can people follow you somewhere? Do you have a website? Um, yeah, I do have a website. It's mainly for my personal practice as far as user experience design goes and research, but it's devinherald.com. Devinherald.com. Yeah, D-E-V-I-N-H-A-R-O-L-D. Um, <laughs> dot com and, and I guess that's where I would first look. I have my social media platforms, of course, on okay. there. <laughs> okay, but I don't post much. I mainly watch. So right. you're a you're a consumer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but a scheduled one. A scheduled consumer. That's right. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you again, and um, thank you for joining us for this conversation, dear listener. And um, this has just been such a great journey so far, and I'm glad to th that you've stuck with us. So as we always close with the words of Richard Rohr, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. See you next time.